This is the To The Point Podcast. Together with our ERISA attorney, we'll explore key Affordable Care Act and trending compliance topics, all in 15 minutes or less. Now here's our host, Sarah Gillespie. Welcome to our To The Point Podcast. This is Sarah Gillespie. I'm the Compliance Director at Lipscomb Pitts Insurance in Memphis, Tennessee. And I have with me Stacey Barrow, our ERISA attorney. Hey, Stacey, how are you? I'm good, Sarah. How are you? So I'm thinking that, you know, it's the end of 2019 and what we've done the past couple of years is we've given our audience kind of a recap of what's happened compliance wise in 2019 and then done a look forward to the next year. So I want to do that here. And um, there's just a few things that I'm thinking we wanted to talk about for 2019. But one of the... um, the most confusing is the interaction of the limits, the benefit limits. And so before we get into that, let's talk about what the new limits are for the ACA, high deductible health plans, HSA and FSA. And then can you tell us a little bit about the interaction between the ACA and high deductible plan limits? Sure, absolutely. Let's um, get the easy one out of the way, and that's the health FSA contribution limit, and that has increased for 2020 uh, by $50 to $2,750. Um, so that'll apply for any health FSA plan year beginning in 2020. Um, earlier this year, the IRS did release uh, the numbers for um, HSA contributions and high deductible plans. Um, they've gone up modestly. Um, the contribution limit for um, an HSA plan is $35.50 for single coverage and $7,100 if you have family high deductible coverage. Um, the minimum annual deductible for high deductible plan coverage is $1,400 for single, $2,800 for family, and the maximum out-of-pocket limit for high deductible plan coverage in 2020 will be $6,900 for single and $13,800 for family. This is a little bit less than the maximum out-of-pocket limits that apply under the ACA to all plans um, that are non-grandfathered, including high-deductible plans. But since the high-deductible plans limits are generally lower, those will be the ones that apply. Um, There is a little bit of a nuance um, when you have very high deductibles. and the ACA out-of-pocket rules apply. So you have uh, um, a non-grandfathered plan that's a high deductible plan. And so you have to comply with both the ACA and the um, HSA rules. And so there's a wrinkle that comes into play when the out-of-pocket limit is greater than 8150, which is the limit for, for 2020. And so when that happens, family coverage, there, has, there must be an embedded out-of-pocket limit within that family coverage. So um, if you want to have an out-of-pocket limit in excess of $8,150 under the ACA, 
um, and within family coverage, any one person's cost sharing has to be limited to 8150. So what you'll find is if you want to have a deductible, let's just say, let's just use $12,000, sorry, out of pocket limit, um, $12,000 out of pocket limit. Um, <clears throat> most insurance carriers or third-party administrators would say, sure, we can do that. But since we have the embedded out-of-pocket limit rules, the embedded limit is going to be one half of the family limit. So $12,000 uh, family limit, the embedded out-of-pocket limit would be $6,000. It could be as high as eighty-one fifty, but most of the time because of the way their system are developed, um, they want the embedded limit to be neatly one half um, of the the, uh, the family limit. So um, that would also be true um, in your high deductible plan if you had um, you know a similar plan design, six thousand for single out of pocket limit, twelve thousand dollar for family out of pocket limit. Due to the ACA rule, you'd have to have an embedded out of pocket limit no greater than eighty one fifty starting in twenty twenty. And with in all likelihood it would be six thousand dollars because the carriers and the TPAs want to have um, a a deep multiple uh, to work with. So Hopefully that was clear. Um, if not, you can always get with Sarah um, and she can explain it further. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. I think the point is just that if you are going to offer high deductible plans and you're getting into those really high deductible ranges, be sure that you're working with someone who can help you navigate how to work with both the high deductible and the ACA limits. So, okay, let's move on to the two new HRA options. So this summer, we saw a couple things that were an answer to um, some uh, uh, provisions that Trump had called out or called the agency out on agencies out on in order to expand HRA use. And so can you tell us what those were, what they looked like, just real high level? Sure. So um, these new types of health reimbursements that will be available for 2020, they are um, they come on the heels of the president's executive orders um, to expand the availability of, of health reimbursement arrangements. So the IRS has issued um, a couple of sets of, of rules uh, this year uh, to, to govern the use of these new individual coverage, HRAs is, is what we call them. And essentially, um, it's a way to allow employers to reimburse employees for individual health insurance coverage. There's you know, a number of, of rules that apply here, but one major caveat is that you can't offer employees a choice between group health plan coverage or one of these ICRAs. So essentially, it is a replacement for your group health plan um, to the class of employees that's offered the ICRA, and there are fairly strict lines as to who can be in a class, you know, full-time, part-time, salaried hourly, essentially replacing your group health plan for um, a certain uh, class of employees, um, or maybe perhaps offering one of these arrangements, these ICRAs, to a class who is not in a benefits traditionally like part-time employees um, or seasonal employees. Um, so essentially they're a way to pay for individual market coverage. Um, 
they're they're interesting vehicles. We haven't seen a whole lot of take up yet and, and interest by employers. Um, I don't know if any, if, if anyone's ever uh, shopped for an individual market policy, it, it can be daunting. I've I've helped family members, um, and I'm an ERISA attorney, and it can be confusing to shop for for individual policy. So I don't know if it's a, a direction that uh, many employers are 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 really looking to head. Before you talk about the accepted benefit HRA. I just wanted to chime in. So um, it is still not okay to reimburse individuals for their health insurance um, outside of one of these ICRAs, individual coverage HRAs. You still cannot do that, whether it's pre-tax, post-tax. This is the vehicle to do it. And then if you're going to do it, like Stacy said, there's a lot of rules and parameters that you have to follow in order to do that. So be sure that if that's something that you are considering that you're talking to your broker about um, how exactly to do it. And for those reasons, that's exactly why we are not seeing, Stacy's not seeing, we are not seeing a lot of take up on these either. But okay, so Stacy, tell us a little bit about these accepted benefit HRAs. So the other type of, of new HRA um, that's come as a result of the executive order is uh, an accepted benefit HRA. The best way to think about this um, is like the health FSA on steroids. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't allow employee contributions, but it allows a greater employer contribution that is normally permitted to a health FSA. In most cases, you're limited to contributing as an employer $500 into the health FSA unless employees are also putting money in. Um, so this new accepted benefit HRA allows employers to put up to $1,800 per year in an HRA for employees. Um, and it doesn't have to be integrated with a group health plan, the employees who are eligible for the accepted benefit HRA just need to be eligible for the major medical plan. So it's, it's again, similar to a health FSA where you, you know, hopefully um, understand that the, the only people that can be offered a health FSA are employees that are eligible for medical coverage. So if your medical eligibility starts at 30 hours, you couldn't offer a health FSA down to 20 hours. Um, and that's due to, you know, an arcane um, Affordable Care Act rule, um, but they, you know, essentially the eligibility um, should be consistent between the health FSA and the group health plan. That's also how um, these accepted benefits, HRAs would work. Whether the employee elects the group health plan or not, they would be eligible to uh, partake um, and participate in this accepted benefits HRA, which, you know, $1,800 for um, medical, dental, vision expenses. It doesn't really reimburse premiums um, except in limited circumstances. Um, I think dental and vision premiums might be reimbursable and short-term limited duration insurance. Um, but other than that, it's uh, again, it's kind of like a, a stepped-up health FSA. So if you're interested in learning more about either of these, we recorded a podcast just on this topic. So definitely take a listen to that if you want to know more. But I want to move on to the expanded definition of preventive care for HSA. So we also saw something about that come through this summer. What does that mean? And um, what do you think is 
well, I'll ask you your opinion in a second. First, what does it mean? Sure. Um, so this occurred um, earlier this summer, and it was uh, some guidance for HSA plans. Um, it's really only relevant to HSA plans, but what it does is it allows HSA qualified plans to treat certain coverage for chronic conditions as preventive care and cover it uh, before the deductible um, is satisfied, you know, to treat it as, as preventive care, essentially. Okay, so um, regarding your opinion on it, I'm curious what you think as far as whether there's going to be a big take up of this or not, because it is optional. So carriers do not have to come out the door quoting this. And we haven't seen it included um, automatically. And so I'm just wondering if you think that, you know, it's, it's exciting information. Do you think it's going to go somewhere or not go somewhere? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's it's kind of exciting information for anyone that has these conditions and, and has um, an HSA qualified plan. Um, so there's a, an expanded list of conditions. I, I'll just you know, give a, a couple of them, like congestive heart failure, hypertension, asthma, diabetes, heart disease, depression. Um, and there are then certain um preventive care services like, you know, blood pressure monitors and beta blockers and glucometers and statins and different preventive care that that can be provided before the deductible is satisfied now. And in my experience, you know, I work with some very large self-insured plans um, and, and even not so large plans. I think a lot of larger employers have been doing this for years under their self-insured plans. And this is just a way um, to kind of catch everybody up and get them on the same page. You know, there were arguments that these drugs, you know, could be uh, preventive even prior to this guidance. So, you know, I, I was thinking that carriers would kind of jump on this and, and, and treat more of these conditions as preventive because it should lower costs in the long run. It gets people healthier. Um, so I am, uh, you know, <laughs> chagrined a little bit that you're not seeing a better uh, take-up rate. I, w I would think it'd be, you know, cost-saving for, for everyone involved. Agreed. Agreed. Well, we'll see as more of these get quoted and um, the HSA specifically, how that tends to be adopted. But if you don't know that this is an option, definitely you can request it if you're looking to uh, add it to your HSA or implement a new HSA. There are expanded preventive care options that can be added to it. So, okay, I want to move on to ACA affordability. So we know that the affordability percentage for 2020 was decreased to 9.78. And what I was hoping that you would explain is which percentage employers can use to base their affordability? Because I know if you've got like a January 1 policy, you may still be able to use um, 2019's affordability percentage. Is that correct? Um, no, not not exactly. I think you know, these are the affordability percentages to use for plan years beginning in that year. So for a plan year beginning 1-1 one, one of 2020, you would have to use the lower 9.78% affordability. If you have a 12-1 plan year, uh, then your 12-1-19 plan year would, would use 9.86%. 
but the 20, oh, 21 will have to use back. That's what I was thinking of. Yes, that's what I was thinking of. This is the plan years that were close to 2020, but started at the end. Yes. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. No problem. <laughs> So let's move on and talk about expectations for 2020. So uh, most obvious, it's an election year. Do you think that means anything? Do you think that there's going to be a lot of talk, but little actual activity? Or what do you think is going to happen just as far as that is concerned? Well, you know, I think it's it's interesting that the Trump administration has started releasing more rules you know, toward the end of the year, or at least, you know, indications of executive orders that they're going to propose rules on things like surprise billing and, um, and transparency. I think there's going to be a big fight by the carriers over some of these transparency bills um, or, or regulations. Um, but it's interesting that this administration, um, you know, is taking action on healthcare. Um, you know, very close to the start of an election year. You know, the the new HRAs. Um, there was uh, another um, act that strengthened Medicare Advantage plans, um, which I think is a good idea. And you know, the the inaction in what will you know, have to hear about um, for the next year will probably be more talk on Medicare for all um, until the, the Democrats abandon it if they ever do. Um, but we'll hear more talk about Medicare for all, which, you know, I don't think is going to really be any kind of reality. If you if you look close at what a lot of the Democrat, the, some of the Democratic candidates are talking about the front runners, Elizabeth Warren, you know, I don't think anyone really believes that she's going to go very strong on on Medicare for all. Um, but, uh, you know, I I continue. I think we'll continue to see some regulations by the, the federal government in, in 2020. Um, they weren't extremely busy this year, but it's it's been in, impactful. You know, the new HRAs, the preventive care. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll have to see. We're certainly keeping our eye on things. As far as ACA updates, I read an article recently about the potential renewal of the PCORI fee. And of course, my response was no, because <laughs> we had just talked to employers that had finished their obligation because it was supposed to end as of um, la this, this year. So what do you think about that? Any idea if that's going to happen, the renewal? Yeah, I, I have not heard about that. Um, I, I think the only way that they can do it is by amending the law because the end date is actually in the law. Um, it's not something the IRS can just decide, you know, we'd like another couple of years of this. Um, so Congress would have to actually amend the ACA to reinstate it. I think that's pretty unlikely, but um, I'm, I'm curious, send me the article. Maybe they have an inside scoop. I will. And the, I, it was saying that it would be amended in the law and that they were looking at putting another 10 years on for the PCORI fee and that something about it being more employer friendly, because I guess um, the frustration is that self-funded employers who have to pay this directly are not seeing any benefit of it. And so somehow this renewal of it is going to come with employer friendly changes. 
I think if you still have to pay it, it's not employer friendly. So that doesn't mean much to me, but I don't know, maybe other people feel <laughs> differently. <laughs> um, exactly. Okay. What do you, what about this EEOC wellness update? Do we have an update? Do we think anything's going to change? I feel like we've been on hold for a long time as to whether, um, you know, the vacated rules were going to be reestablished or if we're just going to continue as we have been. You know, I, I think the I think we're going to end up continuing as we have, but I don't think we'll see much action on that. The EEOC is out there, um, you know, representing that they believe 30 percent works. Right. And so that's in line with Department of Labor rules um, and the EEOC. If you look at any of the cases, they've really, um, you know, gone after they've been situations where the penalties are well above 30 percent. Um, so. I don't think we're going to get a lot of action there. I think the agency has been clear what they think is a reasonable percentage. I don't think they want to go down from there. Um, anything less than that would be, you know, kind of unduly punitive on employers that aligns with current Department of Labor guidance, more or less. So I think they're going to just let it stand. And if they want to challenge um, an employer in court, they, you know, it'll be well above the 30% anyway. Okay. Typically how they operate. Yeah, that's good insight, though, because I think, you know, everybody's still wondering what's going to happen with that. Well, so I think as far as 2020 is concerned, it's maybe a lot of wait and see, but it is an election year. So, um, you know, we'll hear a lot about people's strong feelings one way or another, whether we actually see action or not. So, Stacey, thanks so much for walking us through kind of where we've been and uh, the forecast for next year. If you have any questions for Stacey or for me, feel free to email me at Sarah G S A R A H G at lpinsurance.com. But that is it for today's podcast. We hope you'll listen to one of our others. Have a great day.